Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. Welcome to the good stuff. Yeah. It's the Laugh Podcast. We're your hosts. Over there is Ryan Bull. Howdy. How are you, sir? Doing well. Yourself? I'm okay. And you are? I'm the other host. Richard Lusk, and today, this is episode 200, yay! It's a milestone. It is a milestone, and we've decided to mark this milestone episode to review writer-director Tom Ford's haunting romantic thriller, Nocturnal Animals. Do you ever feel like your life has turned into something you never intended? I'm worried about you. Are you sleeping? You scared me the last time we talked. You know me. I never sleep. My ex-husband used to call me a nocturnal animal. I didn't know you had an ex-husband. I've been thinking about him a lot lately. And then recently he sent me this book that he's written. It's violent and it's sad. Then he dedicated it to me. Did you love him? I did something horrible to him. It's a movie of shocking intimacy and gripping tension that explores the thin lines between love and cruelty, revenge and redemption. Academy Award nominees Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal star as a divorced couple discovering dark truths about each other and themselves. Right, so this movie, as we said, uh, second movie by uh, Tom Ford. Mm-hmm. His first movie being nineteen or two thousand and nine's A Single Man, starring Colin Firth and Julianne Moore. Uh, this movie stars Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal, Aaron Taylor Johnson, who I think got a Golden Globe Award nomination. Yes, today. he was the only actor nominated from this film. Uh, Michael Shannon, Isla Fisher, or Isla Fisher, Isla. Isla. Oh, Army Hammer, uh, Laura Linney, and Ellie Bamber. I would have thought that this might have gotten an ensemble award nomination. Isn't that the Golden Globe says that? And that's generally the one that, or maybe that's the SAG Awards. I don't I know. Think I think that's the SAG. One of those is generally a, a harbinger of best picture because we are getting into award season with these awards sort of movies. This uh, movie, in fact, won the Grand Jury Prize at the Venice Film Festival. Rightfully so. Really? <laughs> Manchester by the Sea was there? I haven't seen that yet. Um, you actually uh, vetoed us watching Manchester by the Sea in place of doing Nocturnal Animals. Though, I mean, I was interested in this film. I was surprised they came out around us. Because it's still in somewhat limited release. Yeah. Um, I didn't... Uh, you informed me that... Hey, we have some choices to go see for our 200th episode. And this is the one we picked from the very outset. Mm-hmm. This movie forces its audience to have a either a, a, maybe not a relationship with it, but at least a response to it with its ultra bewildering title sequence that makes, I should say, gigantic broad statements about <laughs> nudity and uh, the female form. So this is my question to you. Uh, were you picking up on whatever Tom Ford was laying down <laughs> for the entire film or were you as perplexed uh, and consequently 
dismayed as I was with this movie. Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed this film more than you did, and I have been thinking about it a lot in the 24 hours or so since we saw it. Uh, I kind of like it. I'm not sure I'm going to go back and want to rewatch it, but I kind of dig what it's trying to do. And it feels much more like one of those novels you read in college and then you go to class to talk about it and you kind of get somewhere like you feel like you understand the story a little bit better and the themes and the motifs, but you're not sure you still wrap your head around the whole thing. And I think even the director, Tom Ford, hasn't wrapped his head all about it. Uh, We'll get to the Indian spoilers, but he has a couple opinions about where you could uh, feel the movie went. Right, So he doesn't really have an answer for his own movie. I I think he's trying to be ambiguous. (sighs) Okay. Um, So, yeah, I'm kind of digging it. I do think the story within the story has some of the most gripping cinema I've seen this year. Okay. um, You mentioned it's being a sort of a... Um, novelistic, I guess. Uh-huh. And it is based on a novel uh-huh. by, I think, Austin Wright called Tony and Susan or Susan and Tony. Yeah. It's been re-released as a, uh, as Nocturnal Animals again, I guess in the paperback edition. They make a number of changes to the novel. Oh, I'm okay. led to understand. And a lot of it has to do with setting. Um, some of it has to do with time frames and, uh, there's a heavy involvement in the art world that's not in the original film or in the in the book itself. So that gives over uh, levels of meaning and metaphor that don't really exist in the actual text itself. Not that that matters, but I think it sets up tropes that Ford is interested in because Ford, Tom Ford, is a fashionista mm-hmm. of the higher highest order, I guess. Uh, and I'm not sure if it works for the audience because of that. Well, the art's a bit thing. Are we supposed to understand that Amy Adams is a great artist? Well, I think she's a gallery owner. Oh, so she didn't put on that exhibit <laughs> no. that starts. That wasn't <laughs> no. her creation. No, I think that she refuses to... I mean, they, they allude to it several times in the novel, or in the movie, that she doesn't do art. She just sort of runs art. Okay. So she's very critical of art, but she's also setting up. Yeah, I, does, that's one of those places any, where the movie doesn't doesn't answer that yeah. question. And I'm does not, she have any taste in art, though? <laughs> because I'm not sure that the art being produced is very good. And I, I don't know a whole lot about art, and especially modern art, which is what's on display here. <laughs> There's an emphasis. I mean, with this movie, and a lot like fashion, when you see, like, my fiance makes me watch the Victoria's Secret fashion show every year. Made you. Well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the outfits that they wear are just so way over the top and mm-hmm. um, ridiculous. And there's there are fashions based on those outfits that are available to the general public. So my, I mean, I'm, I was really confused as to what the general public would be buying based on the art that was being displayed at the, you know, at the opening sequence. And, uh, I mean, because it's so visually, I guess, uh, impressive, it's maybe best to say exactly what they were doing for spoilers. But I was just yeah. wondering, is there any of that art that you'd like to display in your own home? No, <laughs> no, there's... it could make an interesting couch, but I guess I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think of the art. 
also I'm not real sure what I'm supposed to think of the novel, you know, this the story that she's reading. Because at the heart of the novel is a very pulpish story that has no real twists and turns. It's a very basic plot. Mm-hmm. It's not really enough to fill a whole movie, which is why it has to be a story within a story. And so basically the plot of the, this movie is Amy Adams is a semi-successful art gallery um, director who's married to a successful businessman or potentially successful businessman. And they're in a state of uh, dismay concerning not only their own relationship, but also sort of where they're headed and they're used to yeah. this lavish lifestyle she gets a package that turns out to be the manuscript of a novel that was written by her husband played by jake gyllenhaal her ex-husband her ex-husband 20 years prior right um and then she starts reading this novel and so the novel actually or the movie has three separate stories the novel being one the timeline that we're introduced to at the beginning of the movie and then there's also flashbacks with uh, Amy Adams's character Susan and uh, her husband, ex-husband Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, I guess Tony. Mm-hmm. Is it Tony or is it Edward? Because he also plays Edward it's, in the novel, and it can get. It's not that it gets confusing. It's just that there are three storylines that are sort of intersecting. I thought he's Edward in the nonfiction story when he's the writer. That's the I person that she falls in love with. Yeah, him. Tony. Okay. It, he also plays the main character in the novel he writes. Right. And he's the only character doing double duty, right? Well, there's one character, but we might have to save that for okay for some some part of the spoilers. Because I, I wasn't aware of this until afterwards when I started doing research on the, on the novel or the know. movie. It also doesn't help that they cast pretty much every redhead in Hollywood in this right. film. With the exception of uh, uh, Howard's daughter. Oh, Bryce Opie. Dallas Howard? Yeah. Yeah. Opie's but, I mean, it feels like everyone... Um, Yeah, no, that's a pretty good plot summary. I'm not sure that this is a movie terribly about plot. Well, there's the plot of the novel, which you say is some, it has some of the best cinema you've seen. Um, I, I was less taken with it because... Well, for a variety of reasons, but maybe you should explain why you thought it was so so good. The, the novel yeah, sequence yeah. Well, the, the, the novel is um, basically Jake Gyllenhaal... And his wife, Isla Fisher, go on vacation with their teenage daughter. They're driving at night through Texas, little two-lane road. They come across some hillbillies who force them off the road. And things gr- get progressively worse from there. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty obvious where this is going from the stares the men give the women. And for me, I just got a, a horrible feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. Okay. Just watching this thing play out and wanting to yell at Gyllenhaal to do something, to not be so passive. Yeah, I guess some of the problem I have with it is the same problem I have with like horror movies or suspense movies is when people make these really dumb decisions, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for them. So then I can't empathize with them, so then I don't really care. Was it a dumb decision or was he just acting out of fear and just... Well, yeah, trying to make... stay safe in the moment as opposed to staying safe in the entire situation. He keeps giving up ground throughout that whole scene. Right. There's a, there's a lot of, there are a, a lot of places where he's making decisions, but I, I can't agree with most of his decisions. And then once I get, once I fall down that road of judgment, 
of the main character and I, I don't feel any empathy for them, then I guess I, I'm, I don't feel the suspense. I guess there's some necessary dis- suspense that I just didn't get. Like I, I felt the suspense in the movie Val- in the Valley of Violence, hmm. not necessarily because of the dog, but because I was invested <laughs> in that character. Okay. And when he went into the bar, I had already invested in him. I kind of liked him. I wanted to see, you know, where it was all going to play out. I think you had less of a, uh, a feeling mm-hmm. of tension and suspense. Like this movie's going for that. I recognize it. I just didn't, I didn't get it as much. And then I'm wondering if you took out everything that surrounds it, the framing devices and the flashbacks to the original relationship and you, and you're just left with that one story and you fleshed it out. Would it have been a good movie? Like, would it have been a movie you wanted to see? I don't think so. I think it, I don't think there's enough. I, that one scene I thought was really good and the tensions there. Maybe it's because I travel on some desolate roads with my family mm. and the holidays are coming up and I'm, you know, thinking, huh, I need to be a little careful. Well, that's interesting because for me, the only real part of the movie that I enjoyed involved that story, but it wasn't, it wasn't. The primary sort of, uh, I don't know, hook, narrative hook, but it was the character of uh, Andes. Uh, what's his name? Bobby Andes, played by Michael Shannon. Okay, so and you like the, the falling action. Sort of. I, I, I like, well, I mean, I guess still rising action in terms of where it's headed. If it's if it's a revenge tale, okay, then it's headed in a certain direction, and this guy sort of leads him. I liked his judgment <laughs> i mean because i was feeling the same way the the andy's character felt towards the man when the man makes a series of decisions and and uh bobby andy's comes in as a uh sort of like a sheriff detective type and he was judging him and then he sort of understood some of the things that happened with him but i i, f- I felt like that character was done well and and written fairly well until it falls apart at some points but I remember leaving the theater and saying, ah, thank God for Michael Shannon, <laughs> because he, he delivered, I thought. Yeah, no, I definitely liked Michael Shannon. You know who they wanted originally for that role? No. Joaquin Jeff Phoenix. Bridges. Joaquin Phoenix would have been decent. He would have been all right. And I know we disagree about this, but I really liked Aaron Taylor Johnson as Ray Marcus, mm-hmm. the leader of the Three Hillbillies. I thought he was very evil, and he had just that stare of a man who has nothing left to lose. and. I, I get that. I wish they'd been played with more menace and less, um, I don't know, it seems sort of slapsticky at times when he's uh, when he initially meets up with him. Uh, that Aaron Taylor Johnson guy had the same career path trajectory as uh, the Jacob Mintz guy from, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, he was in uh, Role Models and uh, Superbad. Okay. They, yeah, yeah, they yeah, were yeah. kind of filling the same role at that time, Taylor Mintz or something mm-hmm. like that. But that, now they're they've gone off in radically different directions. Well, yeah, Aaron Taylor Johnson now is playing superheroes. I mean, well, he, he was did, super bad. Well, no, he, he, was, he did Kick Ass. Kick Ass. That was. But it. But then he was also Quicksilver in uh, the second Avengers film. Right now, I didn't even recognize who he was. I didn't even know who this guy was. I thought he was Jacob Taylor Mintz or whatever at that time. You know. Mm-hmm. They've gone radically different career paths. Yeah, no, I I think he uh, is very deserving of Best Supporting Actor nomination. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get nominated for an Academy Award. Because, wow. Uh, I okay. guess maybe I on the We it. Laugh we'll talk about some of the Golden Globes, but some of the people getting nominated I thought were weak. Well, you know, the Golden Globes has often been accused of just being 
something where people could buy you off. And Tom Ford, the director of this movie, just had to, they, all the voters had to send back this super expensive perfume that he had so. given them. Yeah. When there was the, like, Pia Zadora, mm. apparently she bought her Golden Globe. I think a couple of years ago, Jennifer Aniston baked cupcakes for that movie Cake and sent them to the Golden Globe voters. Oh, to try and it, yeah. trouble. Yeah. The Golden Globes is not, I mean, it doesn't have the prestige necessarily, but it does get the press, so. Well, and, and it does help just set the field yeah. for the Academy Awards yeah. and the sides and all those others. Yeah, I am, I'm perfectly willing to admit that I'm wrong on Aaron Taylor Johnson here. I just didn't like the character, yeah, I that's guess. Fine. I really was surprised by the number of names that this movie was able to get. Martin Sheen shows up for a scene. Oh, really? Where? He was the gay married... A friend of Amy Adams at the dinner party. It's not Martin Sheen. Michael Sheen, sorry. Michael Sheen. (laughs) Martin Sheen. No, no. Uh, Yeah, Michael Sheen shows up. And I mean, he's. The guy from Masters and Johnson or whatever, the television show on Showtime? Yeah. He's also the robot in um, Passengers, I think, right? Yeah, he's in Passengers. He played Frost and Frost Nixon. Okay. He's a a very talented actor. And I mean. Uh very well respected and for him to just show up for a random scene i thought was a little odd but you know that apparently was great yeah apparently people really want to work for tom ford this is a gorgeous movie it's very well filmed uh, a lot of the reviews i was reading of it they compare it a lot to hell or high water because of its texas setting at least for uh, the, novel, guess the part. novel part yeah and it really is some beautiful landscape but even some of the stuff in uh, L.A. and New York, I thought, you know, a lot of the stuff was very well framed. and Oh, well, he's going for a lot of the visual stuff. I mean, visual metaphors all over the place. And if there's anything to enjoy about the movie, for me, it's that. I mean, I, I noticed things on the edges of the frame that I appreciated. Um, you mentioned um, some of the opening sequence. In, in the opening title shot, there's mm-hmm. the the thing that we won't necessarily talk about. But then there's also uh, images of the LA freeway and how packed that can be. And that as a satellite image or an overhead image. It can, that's pretty impressive to look at, but I think it's working mm-hmm. metaphorically against the isolation that they, that you see in the setting of the novel part of the movie. Um, one thing we haven't really talked about much is Amy Adams and her character, Susan. I'm wondering, I mean, I had a, in, I mean, probably over-the-top negative reaction to the character. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I didn't find much of what she was doing very believable in either of the two stories that she's that she takes place in. Um, she's not necessarily in the novel, although she kind of puts herself in there. Uh, there were times where I thought Ford was doing something just way over the top with the transitions in between the three stories. And it, it didn't work for me. And I'm wondering how, what you thought of Amy Adams and her character, at least Susan Morrow. I think she has a very hard part to play. She's not someone that you're going to like in a lot of ways. It reminds me of gone girl and just the, the role in that of the female lead. Yeah. Who are we supposed to like at all? I'm not sure movie? we're really supposed to like anyone. And then normally Amy Adams just has this beautiful, soft face that just invites you in. And just she always seems to radiate a lot of warmth. And she does in some of the flashbacks, especially early on. 
she has that typical charm I think of when I think of an Amy Adams movie. But in this, she was so cold and not vapid, but... Empty? Empty, yeah, I guess might be the word. Vacuous. That it was hard to watch her like that because normally she's just she's so much fun to watch and like even uh, we enjoyed her in Arrival mm-hmm. and even though that's a hard role and you know she has a lot of reasons to be sad during that movie there is a certain joy watching her on the screen. Well, she's just as dour and melancholy in Arrival as she is in this movie. No, it's I just... think she's much more in this one. Oh uh, well, in I, I mean, in just the way her face looks. Uh, I'm saying that the characters have the same (laughs) level of sadness about them, but this movie, she's just really in that state of depression, and there's nothing endearing about her at all. And the way she reacts to things. I agree. Well, that goes back to my question at the very beginning. Is the art any good? Does she know what good art is? Because I would argue this novel that she gets sent is not that good. I mean, maybe the writing's beautiful on the page, and we only briefly get shown one page. But I don't think it's this great story, and she's like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm thinking, this is pulp. This is something that should only be published as a paperback. But she's not pulled into the the book because the book is any good. She's pulled in it because of the story and the connection she has with the author. She can't put it down. Yeah, because, I mean, she sees herself and she sees what's going on there. Plus the whole thing about her husband not being able, or her ex-husband not being able to create a novel or write a novel. She read his first novel and thought it was crap. But this one she's really impressed with. Now, to your point, maybe it is crap. I don't know. But she sees a lot of herself in there. And then that whole novel's working as metaphor. I mean, metaphor for their relationship. And that's why... I guess she's so pulled into it. And yeah, but then does that say something else about art and people's sensibilities? And I mean, I think it says something. I'm just and then sure. you wait 20 years to get back at your ex-wife and write this novel? Like, well, that's t- ridiculous also. But that's the whole thing. And then if you remember at the beginning of the film, when she drives into her estate, we're shown another car pulling up. Mm-hmm. So are we to assume Jake Gyllenhaal dropped off this package, especially drove all the way out to her house to leave this package there in the middle of the night. Well, he says he's that he, he says he's in the area. He's in Los Angeles for four or five days or whatever, but that could have been a courier. It could have been anybody. We don't know. It, it who didn't, it is. He, oh yes. And, and so it's left up to us to decide, but mm. you really wonder like what's going on with him. And we never see Jake Gyllenhaal in present day. Right. And there's a point to that. That might be, I mean, I don't know how much of this we need to save for a spoiler section or not, but I, I was thinking that that reveals a lot about that the state of mind of Amy Adams. Mm-hmm. The fact that we don't see him in the present day. We, we really see very little of him, even in the flashbacks. Apparently him and Army Hammer, uh, Amy Adams' current husband, they don't get along for some reason. There's some hostility between both the men. Well, we only that's alluded see that to once. through dialogue, yeah, but... They never have a scene together. They never interact, I guess. Right. They never have to interact. But But it's clear Hammer does not like Jake Gyllenhaal when he hears about his wife getting sent this manuscript. I think he's sort of flipping about it. He's like, oh, the guy you haven't talked to in a number of years. You're talking about at the very outset. Yeah, yeah, in the kitchen when he's getting his iced coffee. Kind of in a way, I think he kind of hopes that that's something that she might... uh, 
I don't know, a relationship that she might try to foster so that it can take some of the heat off of him and his indiscretions. I, yes. I don't know. There's, there, I guess, again, there are several ways to read mm-hmm. that um, interaction or those interactions and those relationships. I mean, personally, I thought in my mind, oh, this is obvious. Listening to you, having seen it a different way, I'm going, okay, I, I guess I can see that. Well, I, I wonder, because here's the other thing. We saw this movie. People walked out of it. Yeah. At, at numerous spots throughout the movie. Yeah, more than Which more is than interesting. It, it just, when people were walking out during the opening credits, I could understand that. <laughs> well, they're getting their money back. I guess. I don't know. People then leave during some of the opening parts of the novel story. And then even like an hour in, one or two people walked <laughs> out. And I'm like, what was the tipping point at that? And the best was we walked out. You went to go use the bathroom, and I'm watching other people coming out of the theater. And I'm kind of eavesdropping on their conversations. And this one older couple walks by, and he, and the man says, that didn't need to be so long. <laughs> and his wife agreed with him. And I thought, what would you have cut out? So they decided that when the ending was, like, the people that left <laughs> towards the end, they decided, ah, this is good enough. Well, No, this was someone who saw the whole movie. And they no, thought, I'm just saying the other people yeah, that left. Yeah, but... What would you have taken out? I mean, honestly, it, it's it. They feel like you could have whittled this movie down and gotten to something more palatable. I don't so, think it. It's ever supposed to be palatable. I, I tell you what, you could have done. I could have done a lot less with juxtaposed positions of Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal. The the back and forth on that. I'm talking about when they weren't in the same location together. Location together. Oh, they're both taking baths at the same right. time. Right, and she's taking whatever, a shower. Yeah. He's taking, and she's supposed to be identifying with this character that's in the novel. I mean, you do that once, I get it. You don't have to come back to that 17 times, especially in the same exact sequence of shots. Well, And it's that, <laughs> it's that overkill, uh, f- that flourishing overkill that sort of like just pulls me right out, man. Well, and then it's, water's always supposed to be a motif of change. Right. I understand when Jake Gyllenhaal takes his bath and his shower in that his character is undergoing an arc. Amy Adams' character never seems to go through any real arc. <sighs> so the water imagery with her doesn't seem to work other than the director's like, oh, we got Amy Adams. Let's get her naked and wet. <laughs> she needs to get... <laughs> Maybe she was, she was a little soiled. Maybe she felt she needed a bath. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, Have you... Have you ever thrown a book away from you while you were reading it? No. Have you ever stopped reading it at the most intense time? Like, have you ever, have you ever like put a book down because, oh my gosh, I really want to know what happens next, but this is way too intense for me. No. (laughs) I've come close. I've come close. Really? Haunted by Chuck Palahniuk. All right. That, that book. As an adult. Yeah. I was in college when I read it. Okay, well, there's a lot of disturbing things that you could read, and that's different. As opposed yeah. to what's going to happen to this family that gets pulled off, you know, on the other side of the road. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I suppose if she's feeling guilt, then that would explain it. But there are things like, I don't know, diegetic sounds, non-diegetic sounds for the novel part of the movie that fall into the narrative of the story of Susan and then the, those little transitions, they're not even little, those big, huge transitions that Ford is forcing down our throat. Uh, again, they, they just, they fell flat for me. So 
All right. All right. That's fair. But I, I do appreciate this. I do appreciate having another, having multiple interpretations and being able to think about it. Because like Arrival, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I took Arrival on an intellectual level um, when I was watching it and then later on. And it grew in my estimation, although I thought Arrival was a great movie. This movie has grown in my estimation. Believe it, it or is. not. Um, I wish I could recommend this film to my students to go watch. <laughs> definitely can't. This movie is not for most people. This is definitely an art house film. No, and the thing is, it's being marketed as a a thriller, thriller yeah. yeah action movie that like i had a kid come in today he came into film class he said went to the movies this weekend mr lusk I said yeah he said yep saw the new amy adams movie <laughs> i was like nocturnal animals <laughs> because opening sequence is worth you know at least five minutes that's not discussion. what he saw no he saw a rival oh, okay Oh. Uh, but I was like, he's like, but that Nocturnal Animals, that looks pretty good. Should I go see it? I'm like, uh, no. I mean, part of me wants to say, yeah, go see it. I want to know what you think. But then if he didn't, I mean, he didn't respond to Arrival very well. I can imagine what, I mean, he might be among those, that trail of people <laughs> that lead on out of the theater. Now, I don't want to get into too much of a discussion about Arrival, but I've had a number of students go and watch that movie and it. I think it's a shame we never reviewed it. Hopefully it gets nominated for Best Picture. All right. That movie, I thought a lot of the ideas that were simplistic and that like I realized right away, a lot of my students aren't. I think it's a good gateway film. Like If you're trying to get an appreciation for some layers of meaning and metaphor, mm-hmm. that's a good movie. Like A lot of my kids don't understand why the aliens are named Abbott and Costello. Oh, okay. Well, and that's the whole, just cultural on- literacy. There, there's some of that, but, you know, it's pointing out stuff like that to them. Did they, so, the kids that you've talked to about Arrival have enjoyed Arrival? Yeah. they. Oh. I mean, to me, if you're going to bring up a movie to a teacher, generally, it's because you, you like it. But then some of the stuff about time travel and stuff, they just, they had no idea. And you start to talk to them. There, there are a lot of ideas that they got introduced to in that film. And that's definitely a much more serious film. So, even if they didn't understand it. I feel like this is their first time going and seeing. Yeah, but if they're not a, the the farther so, they get away from the experience of the movie, the less likely they are to appreciate it on that intellectual level. Maybe, but I guess my point is, they're watching good cinema, mm-hmm. and hopefully that leads to them watching other good cinema, and those future films will be better understood by well, them. Well, science fiction has always done a good job of dealing with ideas. So. Yeah, okay. I, I agree. No, yeah. I'm just saying Gattaca is a good movie for that, too. Mm-hmm. So, And I, I wish I had pushed Arrival, because I think I was a little worried that they wouldn't like it, that it's a little too slow. Yeah, the kids I talk to don't like it, because it's too slow. Mm-hmm. But I haven't been able to talk to them about the ideas. and the Like, I'd like to get into a discussion of meaning with... That kid or kids, because there was one kid that was very dismissive of it, and this student didn't seem to think that highly of it. So, but I mean, that's because I don't think that they can, that they're really operating on that level. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I mean, sometimes it's points. Uh, you're doing minority report. I just showed that last week to my film class, mm-hmm. and I pointed out some of the symbolism in there, and then you know there are all the crazy nine eleven conspiracy theories with minority report. Because Tom Cruise's case number is 1109, which would be the European date system for 9-11. And the movie came out right after 9-11, came out 
okay. uh, like June after that. A lot of people say it's Spielberg saying 9-11, we knew in advance that it was going to happen because that's the whole idea of Minority Report. They're saying it's much like Kubrick helped fake the moon landing. <sighs> it's, you know, that version. All right. And I don't believe any of that, but it was fun pointing out that stuff and realizing, yeah, there are layers of meaning that I need to do a better job about teaching my students There's because things, things that I think are obvious apparently aren't. There's also things in the foreground that I just noticed in this movie. And there's a, there was one time, one thing that happens in Minority Port. I don't really know if this is much of a spoiler or not, but Whitwer, played by Colin Farrell, mm-hmm. takes a hit of the Druze or whatever that, that mm-hmm. drug is right before he gets into the fight with Tom Cruise. And I'd never noticed that before. Uh, I've probably yeah. seen that movie 17 times. <laughs> he takes a hit off of the, of the, um, whatever that drug is, mm-hmm. Neurotinin or whatever that they that they got from that he got from uh, Tom Cruise's, Tom Cruise's apartment. apartment yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's that movie, Minority Report, and Arrival. But uh, I think we there is some stuff I want to spoil in this okay. because I think there's an interpretation of Amy Adams that is sort of interesting. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. All right, so the way that the Susan keeps getting pulled in and out of the narrative at the least likely times and stops reading and throwing the book and stuff like that, 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 that kind of stuff is over the top. But we are led to believe at one point that she's – at one point during one of these interludes, she gets pulled out and she makes a phone call to her husband who's in New York. And then she overhears that, she's, that he's with uh, someone he's having an affair with. She goes back to reading the novel or she takes a bath or something. The, the, the next time that she encounters that sort of idea is right after the the mother or the, the, the um, character played by Isla Fisher and the daughter are found. Mm-hmm. And she makes a phone call. She stops reading. She makes the phone call. And uh, I think we're, re- we're led to believe that she's calling her husband. And the next shot that we see is is a person in the position of the the daughter that got killed mm-hmm. um, in the in the novel, and the girl answers the phone, and it's not the mistress. I thought it was going to be her husband, and I thought that the mistress reaches for the phone and picks it up, and I'm like, well, why? That's weird. Mm-hmm. She's picking up the guy's phone, um, and then we find out that it's Amy Adams' daughter. That actress is played by the same actress. Ellen Ellie Bamber, who played Helen Hast- Hastings, so it's played by the same actress. It's, it's the same daughter. It's the same daughter. So, who is it, and does she even exist? That's the question I'm having because there's no allusion to it. There's no reference to it. Nobody talks about it before or after that scene. And is the woman just is Susan Morrow, Amy Adams' character, just projecting an idea of what could have existed? If she had stayed with Edward. Oh, that, that's possible. I, I looked at some stuff because we talked about it because I thought it was a plot hole because I thought, oh, the girl's got to be in college. Yeah, that's the and other then thing. the timing doesn't like work. Apparently in the script, people online were saying she. it's clear that the girl's at boarding school and she's 16. Okay, but that's not... Well, that's what script, I said. The script, yeah, spells it out. Not very many boarding schools have like open schnogging. Uh, yeah. 
with, I, I agree. And she doesn't say that. There's nothing in the dialogue that says it. So that it, I think that that part's open to interpretation. Yeah, and, no, I, I think your interpretation makes it more interesting. Well, then that leads me to believe that, <laughs> I mean, pretty much any interaction she has with anybody that's not like in the real time stuff. Mm-hmm. Like she, I think she, uh, she talks to one of her assistants and she talks to, um, oh, the character Jenna Malone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she goes to a meeting or something, but she has a, a email exchange with Edward supposedly where he emails, emails her back and says, I'll see you just name the time or the place. And then the movie ends and he never shows up. Maybe he didn't even exist. Maybe she never got that email. So she wrote the book herself? No, no, no. She, she, maybe she got the book. <coughs> she got the book, but he never contacts her to set up a date. And that's all just her wishes, her desires. Oh, this is her actually finally gained some sleep? No, no, no. She's going to the thing thinking that the guy's going to meet her, but she's just like punishing herself. It's just another, uh, another level okay. of her depression. Cause we, like you said, it, we never see, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character in the, in the present time of the movie, in the frame of the movie. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of like that. I would rather use one of your other famous theories about famous literary women. She's just dumb. Yeah, she's Daisy from Great Gatsby. <laughs> two, it, it's the story of two men. She doesn't really love her husband. Her husband cheats on her. She wants the other man. But the and the other man's now dead, floating in a pool somewhere. She can't have him. <laughs> Yeah. Well, because is his revenge just to make her want to see him and then never show up to the for the date? Like, is this his twenty year long plan? Well, yeah, that's one of the things the director says he's leaving a- ambiguous that this is him getting back, or he's afraid he still has feelings for her and he can't bring himself to come back and get hurt, or he doesn't exist, or he's not even there, or he's he never even got the original email. Like I don't know if we do we see her. So send she the just email? imagines sending the yeah yeah she we see her type we we see her typing out the email and she thinks about it before she sends. Does it. she send it though? <laughs> I don't know. Does she have? Do I day? have to go see this movie again? No, I don't. <laughs> but if I did, uh, does it make you want to read the novel? No, I looked into the novel. I I read some stuff online and apparently the time frame in between the two, uh, in between the book is twenty five years. Okay. And, I mean, there's a big difference between 18 and 25. Six. Seven. Seven, yeah. <laughs> She's an English professor in the novel also. So that all that art stuff is sort of out of the... Oh, it's more... It makes for better visuals. I think, Like I said, it's hard to have this novel as your central plot device. And you never get to hear the actual words of the author. We don't know. Well, there's also the... Or we the, can't judge his quality. I think... Quality. Inside of the frame of the novel, inside of the novel, Tony and Susan, that that stretches out over time. And I think Tony Hastings, the character in the novel, the father in the novel, actually goes on and has a relationship and develops, you know, he has a girlfriend or something. And then they find this guy again. I think what happens is Ray, the character played by Aaron Taylor Johnson, is released from prison. And then that's when. Bobby Andes says, Hey man, they're letting him go. It's been 10, 15 years. They're letting him go. And now we're going to go get him because mm-hmm. I know that this was the guy and I'm not going to end my case on this. And then they set up this elaborate scheme. Does, um, Jake Gyllenhaal accidentally shoot himself at the end? Yeah, but it's not as stupid 
as it is in the book. I mean, in the, in in the, the movie, movie, it's just it's just he 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 offs himself by shooting himself in the gut. Well, and he fired in the air once for some reason, and then he falls. That yeah. that was very clunky and not handled well at all. In the book, I think he falls into a ravine, and he's he's he hears the sirens coming. Mm-hmm. Well, and then let, he, let alone he shoots the guy twice, and the guy still is able to well, clobber Yeah, what him. is that, a twenty-two or a Glock? It looked like... It wasn't a Glock. It looked like 9mm. I mean, Grant, you can get shot, and you can be shot dying and still have well like a 22 10 15 probably. seconds yeah but you got to hit the guy pretty hard and knock the eyesight out of him because isn't he blind yeah it looked like that eye got crushed i hit him on the temple right just yeah. crushed that eye in but I, that stuff i think well, plus been where, done a little bit. what happened to bobby andy's he does he's not going to swing by the the trailer in oh, the middle of the day the plot holes in the novel yeah i mean we've already talked about or we talked about privately the DNA evidence. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that everyone apparently lives right there. It would have been great if Jake Gyllenhaal, when he was looking for help, had stumbled across the sheriff, who apparently lived a block away from where these murders happened. Well, and, and the weird thing is, in the book itself, the book was written in 1993, so there were no cell phones at all. So even if the book were set, the book inside of the book, mm-hmm. if the, I'm sorry, if the, book inside of the movie were set in 93 even mm-hmm. then they wouldn't have to worry about the whole cell phone thing they didn't yeah even cell phones that. were not uh ubiquitous yeah i think there might have been some car phones but there wouldn't have been like "Ooh, did you get a signal here like no it wouldn't have even been an expectation yeah. in west texas Do you know what show <laughs> popularized cell phones to a great extent uh, friends the etz files oh okay they were always on them and then there's an iconic uh, scene where they're both talking on cell phones at separate locations and they're walking and they meet up and the right. two shots dissolve into each other. I, I think something tells me cell phones would have been ubiquitous without X-Files. It, it helped really me. popularize them. Fair enough. Because I guess before people always thought of cell phones as only for the businessman, you know, the Wall Street broker, not a necessity for everyday life. I so. That's legitimate, I suppose. Um, yeah, of course it is. At one point, Susan says that she broke up with Tony in the most horrific way possible. Uh, I've had at least two breakups in my life that were way worse than what we see on screen. So unless she did something off screen that was a heck of a lot worse than what we saw, well, I think you're maybe not she sure. You're much. not sure. Did he know she was pregnant? Whose baby is it? Oh, you're even going that way because apparently they're the movie in the middle of getting divorced. Yeah, that that stuff. If, I know it's it, trying to be ambiguous, but there are times you can stray a little too far, and we need some more story. Plus, he just sees her in a car with another guy. Yeah, he just showed up. That's there. supposed to be the most horrible thing that causes him to go on this 19 year revenge plot of I'm going to write a novel that will impress her so much that she'll cut her hand on the, on the wrapping. <laughs> no, wow. that's his revenge. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that was just kind of weak. I don't know. Just not there's nothing quite believable about a person that's has that still carries that sort of torch twenty years later. Was there any art in the film as we're wrapping up that you enjoyed? Because there was one piece art? of art to go back. There <laughs> is, is one piece of art I would like. There's a big emphasis on the female on the female <laughs> no, form. I don't want the I don't want those. There's a painting Amy Adams looks at when she goes back to her home, I think after the art meeting. 
and it's two hillbillies in a field and one of them's <laughs> right. pointing a gun at the other one. Right. And you're kind of like, what's going on with this? It kind of looked like a photograph. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like that piece of art. Every picture tells a story. There was another piece of art that was hanging over her head in the desk when it's just like mm-hmm. a fisheye view of some girl's ass. <laughs> you laughed at that. And then you well, asked the question. So, it was so absurd. Well, this is a, a, there are a lot of butts in this movie. The mm-hmm. female butts. There's his daughter it, when she gets, when they find her dead on the couch. And then there's Amy Adams' mystery daughter. And then right after that, you see the, the butt of the girl hanging over her desk. It's, it's very strange. And you asked the question then when we left, does the movie want you to laugh? Do you think he wants us, Tom Ford wants us to experience multiple emotions so that we become characters in his own movie? This is just like a metafictional way of dealing with our own emotions. Because I tell you what, the opening scene is a bunch of women, big, gorgeous, beautiful women. <laughs> if, and if, if, it, if this movie had... If it, if it weren't in slow motion and the women weren't morbidly obese, would the other woman had walked out? Uh, the, the if it's just a couple patron. of women like uh, uh, like a Victoria's Secret mm-hmm. fashion show with sparklers or whatever, and they're, they're nude, but it only takes, I don't know, 15 seconds of screen time instead of two and a half minutes You might of have had time. one or two people walk out. I don't know. Because it, but it, you wouldn't be compelled to laugh or want to laugh. Uh, maybe the scene reminds me a lot of the song and dance number in the master, (laughs) which had people walk out of that. The song where everyone's new. Yeah. And he's looking around, but yeah. And he's singing. It's in the middle of the dinner party or whatever. I I think that was another just absurd scene that terribly upset people. It made me enjoy the scene more because of that. But I think that by then the people had been beaten down by the movie. Okay. It was halfway through the movie, or at least two thirds of the way through, and it and they it's already like a weird, trippy kind of movie. This movie, at the very outset, puts you in a position, an uncomfortable position of not really being sure how to react to it. Like, because I wanted to laugh. There are times when I wanted to laugh, and I thought the movie wanted me to laugh too. But then I thought, what am I laughing at? Like, am I laughing because these women are not your, you know, your traditional form of beauty? Oh, and he's definitely doing something by increasing their size. <laughs> they are, I mean, morbidly obese. Some in, of them in, weigh four hundred pounds. And yeah, he keeps going up, and then he goes back to the first one, and you're like, Mur. "Which is your favorite?" I think the first one. But by going back, he is making some statement, and supposedly it's about uh, American art and pop culture, and yeah. sure, well, th- there could be something there. But that that progression, were they something's all, going on there? Were they all redheads? I don't remember. I think one of them had gray hair, actually. Quite but there possible. were four of them. So next week's show, man. Yeah, uh, next week, uh, I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to do Collateral Beauty. No, it's <laughs> got to be Rogue One. Actually, when you said Collateral Beauty, I thought you were talking about this movie. It's like <laughs> another another strangely worded yeah, movie. Yeah, I guess we'll do Star Wars. We're going to have yeah. to do Rogue One, man. We're going to have to do... It's the, it's the movie experience of the year. I bet you you're going to like it. Do you like Felicity Jones? you like Mads Mikkelsen? I guess we'll be talking a lot about that on yeah. the We Laugh that will be upcoming. So. Yeah, you can try and sell me on the film. All right. For Mr. Uh, Bull over there. It's been a pleasure. I'm Richard Lusk. Poxhead Bonham, everybody. There be dragons. Mm-hmm.
Are you going to the movies this weekend? Let Laugh know what you saw. Send in your review by emailing the show at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at the Laugh Podcast, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash the Laugh Podcast. The best comments will get read on a future show. <laughs>